I'll leave the dancing to Tom. <laughs> Friends, let us pray. Guide us, O oh God, by your word and your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A few weeks ago, I had the great honor of teaching our youth in their fourth class of confirmation. After learning about God and Jesus and the Bible and sin from my fellow clergy and staff and volunteers, Dave, I saw him, Dave reserved for me the most scintillating of topics, the most pressing question on the mind of today's youth. What does it mean to be Presbyterian? Why does the Presbyterian Church matter today? Does it even matter today? You have to admit, the challenge before me was great. I mean, how does one make a tradition that was founded several centuries ago by a bunch of dead white guys operating in an entirely different context, using words like predestination and total depravity, appealing or even acceptable to a 14-year-old half asleep on a Sunday morning in 2022. I'll tell you this much, it wasn't easy. But answering those questions for myself is. You see, I'm not embarrassed to admit that I am a proud, card-carrying member of the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. I dig Wow, we got clapping for that. So I, we've got some fellow fans. I dig Reformed theology. I am down with Presbyterian polity. And I love Reformed worship. Why? Because even though it is complicated in practice, each of these things is founded upon three simple truths. That God is sovereign. Jesus is Savior. And humanity is, well, sinful. But instead of just leaving it at that and saying that God is good and humanity is bad, our tradition confesses that ours is a relentless God, one who continues to be at work in us and through us, even now, or perhaps especially now. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, the church reformed, always reforming. In other words, we believe in a God that has not and will not give up on humanity. But the same can't always be said about us, can it? I don't know about you, but giving up seems like a pretty tempting option these days. 277 mass shootings so far this year. 102 days of senseless violence in Ukraine. Climate change worsening, COVID cases spiking, inflation soaring, creation groaning, so many problems with no promising solutions. There is a very real tension be between what we proclaim as Christians, what we confess as Presbyterians, and what we are actually living as human beings in the United States of America in 2022. But that is precisely why we need to be constantly reminded that while we may be transformed in Christ, we are still being transformed by Christ. 
So how do we remind ourselves of that radical truth? Well, by doing this, by showing up for worship. As Amos mentioned in our most recent, recent This Is Crucial conversation, all of this is strange. It is weird. People of every generation and background, race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and political party, all gathered in one place at one time, lifting up our voices as one to do what? To worship, to praise the most high God, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, and to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. But for those of us who have been doing this for quite some time, myself included, the utter strangeness and weirdness of worship can wear off over time. Almost to the point where all of this begins to feel normal or even mundane. And it is in that place of forgetting that we as the church fixate on the how rather than the why. Should our services be at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m.? In God-made nature or in man-made sanctuaries? With 10-minute homilies or 30-minute sermons? Playing guitars or organs? Singing hymns or contemporary music? Standing on red carpet or blue carpet? Wearing robes or street clothes? Now that may be what worship looks like, but that is not what worship is about. Interestingly enough, scripture does not concern itself with the kind of particulars that we in the church spend so much time deliberating over. What it does concern itself with is the who of worship, the why of worship, the what of worship. And so that is what we are going to concern ourselves with over the next six weeks. Honoring our tradition, we are going to bring everything we do on a Sunday back to scripture. With the Bible in one hand and our order of worship in the other, we are going to break down each element of our worship service from the call to worship to the prayers of the people and remind ourselves why we do all of this in the first place. And guiding us for the first four weeks of this series is a single passage in Luke, chapter 7. Now at face value, this passage just seems like an encounter between Jesus, a woman, and a Pharisee. But if we look deeper, we will find that this narrative also provides us with a beautiful model of worship. And for our purposes today, it shows us the meaning of that thing we start every service with, the call to worship. So listen up, folks, for God is speaking. Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. 
One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began saying among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Friends, the word of the Lord. As church-going and worship attendance has become less of a common and familiar practice, many churches have responded by adding a page on their websites that's titled something like, What to Expect on a Sunday Morning. For example, expect services to start at so-and-so time, or expect the following dress code, or expect programming for children and youth to be in this place. This is what you should expect. But what these pages don't include is what not to expect. They don't ever say, don't expect for the services to go much longer than an hour. Don't expect any interruptions from the congregation during the service. Don't expect dancing in the aisles, hollering hallelujahs or audible amens. Don't expect the unexpected. In his seminal book on reformed worship, aptly titled, Worship, Pastor and Professor Hughes Oliphant Old names three fundamentals of right reformed worship. Major spoiler alert, decent and orderly is not one of them. The first fundamental is that worship must be according to scripture, or as Hebrews 4 puts it, the word of God living and active, not frozen in time or remote in history, but cutting our soul from our spirit, our joints from our marrow, right here, right now. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda. The second fundamental is that worship must be in the name of Jesus Christ, or as Philippians 2 puts it, the name that is above every name, including our name, or the name of our favorite theologian, or preacher, or pundit, or politician. Ecclesia reformata, Semper Reformanda. And last but not least, the third fundamental of Christian worship is that it is the work of the Holy Spirit, or as Acts 2 shows us on the day of Pentecost, the spirit of transformation, one that has the power to change our hearts and our minds and even our mouths so that we may serve a world in need. Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda. Now, based on those three things, what exactly should we expect on a Sunday morning? Should we expect packed pews? Not so much. 
Beautiful music? Maybe. A coherent sermon? You know, if you're lucky. <laughs> the presence of the Most High God? Now you're talking. Worship assumes one thing and one thing alone, that God is here. The creator of the universe is here. The spirit of Pentecost is here. The savior of humanity is here. That is the call to worship. Now, who in our passage for the day understood that call? Was it Simon the Pharisee or that unnamed woman with sin? Option one, Simon. At first glance, he did all the right things. He invited Jesus into his home and gave him a seat at his table. He extended hospitality and honored his guests with appropriate effort and intention and restraint. So decent, so orderly. Then there is option two. Some woman from the city who was a sinner. Scripture tells us that this woman somehow finds out that Jesus of Nazareth will be at Simon's house. And so what does she do? She goes. She doesn't care about an invitation or the dress code or the rules of engagement. All that matters is that Jesus is there. So that is where she will be. Then what happens next is every respectable host's nightmare. An unsavory guest crashes your dinner party, makes a beeline to your honored guest, and then proceeds to wash their feet with her tears, dries them with her hair, and then kisses them while anointing them with oil. So indecent and so disorderly. So who was it? Was it Simon the Pharisee or the woman a sinner? Who understood the call to worship? Who understood that all worship requires is the mere presence of God, the location of Jesus Christ? Who understood that worship is not about us, the preparation of our places, the measure of our efforts? Who understood that the call to worship is not an obligation, but an invitation? Who understood that answering the call simply means showing up, just as you are, not as you are expected to be, not as the world or even the church is telling you to be, but just as you are in all of your weirdness and your beauty and your imperfection and your, and your humanity, who do you think understood the call to worship? In her 1987 earth-shattering novel, Beloved, Writer Toni Morrison tells the story of a formerly enslaved people haunted by the trauma of their slavery, even in their freedom. Among these people is a character who goes by the name of Baby Suggs, a woman born into slavery who at her core is a fierce mother, a protective healer, and ultimately a powerful preacher, not the decent and orderly kind, but the kind who understood the call to worship. Morrison writes, When warm weather came, baby Suggs, holy, followed by every black man, woman, and child who could make it through, took her great heart 
to the clearing, a wide open space cut deep into the woods known only to deer and whoever cleared the land in the first place. In the heat of every Saturday afternoon, she sat in the clearing while the people waited among the trees. After situating herself on a huge, flat-sided rock, Baby Suggs bowed her head and prayed silently. The company watched her from the trees. They knew she was ready when she put her stick down. Then she shouted, Let the children come! And they ran from the trees toward her. Let your mothers hear you laugh, she told them. And the woods rang. The adults looked on, and they could not help but smile. Then, let the grown men come, she shouted. They stepped out one by one from the ringing trees. Let your wives and your children see you dance, she told them. And ground life shuddered under their feet. Finally, she called the women to her. Cry, she told them, for the living and the dead, just cry. And without covering their eyes, the women let loose. It started that way, laughing children, dancing men, crying women, and then it got all mixed up. Women stopped crying and danced. Men sat down and cried. Children danced, women laughed. Children cried until exhausted and riven, all and each lay about the clearing damp and gasping for breath. In the silence that followed, baby Suggs, holy, offered up to them her great big heart. She did not tell them to clean up their lives or to go and sin no more. She did not tell them that they were the blessed of the earth, its inheriting meek or its glory bound pure. She told them that the only grace that they could have was the grace that they could imagine. That if they could not see it, they would not have it. Here, she said, in this here place, we flesh. Flesh that weeps, laughs. Flesh that dances on bare feet in grass. So love it. And love it hard. Beloved, that is the call to worship to come just as you are, to come laughing and dancing and weeping and loving the one who created us, the one who saves us, the one who transforms each and every one of us. For God is here in this place, and that is enough. That is the call. That is worship. And so just like the woman who bathed Jesus' feet with her tears, we worship. Like the men, women, and children in the clearing, we worship. In the face of resurrected life and relentless death, we worship. In the face of all that is known and unknown, we worship. Amidst a world seemingly breaking into pieces, we worship. Surrounded by those who are hungry for salvation, we worship with nothing but our tears and our hair and our alabaster jars, we worship, because that is enough. God's presence is enough for us to answer the call to worship. Amen.